So, as Andrew says, uh, we're looking at the whole of 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you're following it in your Pew Bibles, it's page 278, but it will also come up on the screen. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. When they said this, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. And now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers, He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your manservants and maidservants, and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves will become his slaves." And when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. And the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we shall be like all other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, everyone is to go back to his town. And this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Victoria. Let's pray, shall we?
Father, we pray that you would teach us this morning. We pray that you would be with me as I speak and guide my words. We pray that you would help us all to live our lives in the light of what we learn. Amen. This is going to be a slightly unusual sermon in that I'm not going to go through that passage verse by verse. What I want to do is to pull back from it and think about the big picture, the relevance to us of what we learn there about the events surrounding Israel's demand for a king. Now, I'm fully aware that some of you may well be wondering what possible relevance that can have to your lives. But it is relevant, and it's relevant because it shows us how God deals with our rebellion and how he fulfills his plans in spite of it, indeed through it. So what we need to do is think about the context. Many of you will know this, but the Israelites had never had a king. They were a tribal confederation. Each tribe was self-governing. Oh, occasionally, they came together in the face of an external threat. They appointed someone to act as their leader in those circumstances. Those of you looking at the reading plan will have seen an example of that last week in the Israelite tribes coming together under Samuel at Mizpah. But that was the exception. Most of the time, they went their own way. And the result was not terribly satisfactory. Uh, The tribes were fractious, they frequently fought one another, and the religious situation was at best patchy, and a lot of the time downright awful. And externally, the Israelites faced a number of threats. At the time of the events that we've just heard about, uh, in the West, there were the Philistines, the five cities of the Philistines, constantly threatening the Israelites. And in the East, well, Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was marauding around the Transjordanian territories of Israel. Now, faced with that, some people thought that the solution, or at least the beginning of the solution, was clear. The Israelites needed a king. And that wasn't a new idea. Uh, It had arisen a hundred years earlier. After defeating the Midianites, uh, the Israelites asked Gideon to be their king. But at that time, he had refused. I will not rule over you, he said, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That's Judges 8.23. Don't appoint me in place of God, he was saying. God's your king. And there the matter rested for a hundred years. But lots of bad ideas refused to go away, and this was one of them. You see, Samuel had got old. His sons were demonstrably unsuitable and had been banished down to Beersheba in the far south of the country. And there were these external threats. And in the face of that, the idea of having a king was dusted off. And it was not a demonstrably ridiculous idea. If you think about it, in those times, a king might well restore order, both politically and religiously, and he might well be able to organise resistance to the external threats. So why was it wrong 
to ask for a king. Well, the problem was that requesting a king did not deal with the Israelites' fundamental problem. You see, the Israelites were rebelling against God. And what they needed was to repent and exhibit faith and obedience towards God. And that wasn't going to be achieved by appointing a king. In fact, rather the reverse. The very request for the king exemplified exactly the problem the Israelites had. Because what they were saying is they were going to rely on a man, a king, rather than on God himself. And furthermore, did you notice twice in that reading it said they wanted to be like the other nations? They wanted to be like the people around them. But if you go back to Exodus 19, you'll see that their calling was to be distinctive, to be the people of God and to live out being the people of God. Now Samuel, of course, immediately thought they were rejecting him. And yeah, to a point, they were. But God indicated that the deeper problem was that they were rejecting God himself. So as God commanded, Samuel pointed out all of the downsides of having a king. If you noted from our reading, he went on at some length about that. But the people wouldn't listen. Let me read you again what they said. The people refused to listen. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we shall be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Let's just pause there a moment, because there is a danger that we will fall into the same trap that the Israelites fell into. You see, we may say on a Sunday that we follow God, but do we exhibit the repentance, the faith, which includes the reliance on God and the obedience that God calls us to? And specifically, do we sometimes simply want to be like the people around us, as the Israelites wanted to be like the nations around them? And is already quoted from 1 Peter 2.9. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are called to declare the glories of God. We are called to live our lives as the chosen people of God, being distinctive. But do we deep down sometimes simply want to be like the society around us, to blend in, to be part of it? We all need to ask ourselves that question. And we need to beware, to be on our guard about that. But let's move on. For the moment, let's go back to the Israelites. How did God respond? You might have expected him to say, absolutely not, but he didn't. When Samuel heard all that the people had said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. In spite of the fact that, as Samuel later put it, they had done evil in requesting a king, God granted their request. Why? What was he doing? Well, there was an element of judgment in that. We've seen in various parts of the Bible over recent years how God sometimes 
gives us what we want as part of his judgment. He actually says, very well, if that's what you want, you could take it and you will suffer the consequences. And there was an element of that in this. Within two generations, in the time of Solomon, all the things that Samuel had prophesied had come to pass. There was oppression from the king. The Israelites were to pay a high price for their request for a king. But judgment is a side issue in relation to what was going on here. You see, what God was doing was far more complex and actually far more wonderful. The people had rejected him, but he had not rejected them. He was to carry out his plans for their salvation in spite of their rebellion. Indeed, he made use of their rebellion. Just think back a a, a bit. Uh, Long, long before the Israelites had dreamt of having a king, long before they were a settled nation, Moses prophesied that one day they would have a king and laid down God's requirements, his regulations in relation to the kingship. That's Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20. And roll forward to, say, 50 years before the events we were hearing about today. Do you remember in Hannah's song in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah spoke about the time when God's king would be the servant of the Lord and God would anoint that king. That, that's, uh, that's back in Samuel chapter 2. What she said was this. God will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The king would actually be God's anointed. And the unnamed prophet who condemned Eli, also in 1 Samuel 2, said the same thing. And if we were to read on, and I hope you will during the week, into 1 Samuel 9, 10 and 11... Who appoints the king? It was God. It wasn't the people. You see, the people thought that they were in control, but they weren't. It, yes, they had rebelled against God, but God had factored that in. God knew about their rebellion from before the dawn of time, and he'd factored it into his plans. God's will, God's plans, will not be thwarted. And that's a point of enormous consequences. At a superficial level, clearly it demonstrates that opposing God is pretty futile. But then I hope you all know that already. But there's a more profound thing that we need to absorb. And to to get that, I'd like you all to imagine that you lived in the time of Samuel, that you were an ancient Israelite. Yeah, I can see some of you aren't sure about this, are you? (laughs) You're an ancient Israelite, and you joined in the demand for a king. And of course, you got what you wished. A king was appointed, and then you had doubts. And then you realised that, as Samuel put it, you've done evil by demanding a king. And you repent and and say sorry to God. And you think, well, we'd better try and reverse it. And then it dawns on you that there's no going back. You can't undo the appointment of a king. 
How do you then feel? Do you then feel and draw the conclusion that you have missed God's way? Do you draw the conclusion that at best you're outside the centre of his will and at worst you're outside his will altogether? Is that what you conclude? Because if you do, you're wrong. You see, what the books of Samuel teach us is that although we may rebel against God, if we repent, we can return and live our lives in his will again. He will carry on with his plans because he's factored all that in. In the case of the Israelites, what happened? Well, a king was appointed and God used that king to defeat uh, Israel's enemies. And subsequently, King David, a king after God's own heart, to quote Paul, became king and ushered in the golden age of the kingdom of Israel. So you see, if you had thought that because you couldn't reverse what the wrong that had been done, that you'd never be back being blessed by God, then you'd have been wrong. Now, how does that apply to us today? Well, we could look at that at various levels. We could look at it in terms of our church. We've done some things the wrong. We could look at it in terms of our nation. We could look at it in terms of international affairs, but I'm not going to do any of those. I'd just like to look at it at the level of us as individuals. Because, of course, we uh, disobey God. We act, whether knowingly at the time or in retrospect, in rebellion against God. Now, a lot of the things we do wrong are relatively minor and have only short-term consequences. But some things aren't. Some things are seriously wrong and have long-term consequences. I could give examples of that, but I'm not going to do so because I suspect some of you might feel I was picking on you or, worse still, that I was picking on some specific other person. But, But I suggest we all think about it. Think about situations in which we've done something that we know now, or perhaps knew at the time, was in rebellion against God and has had long-term consequences. How are we to react to that? Well, first, of course, we need to repent and seek God's forgiveness, don't we? And by the way, when we do that, we need to recognise that it doesn't matter how serious the rebellion against God was, no matter how devastating the consequences were, perhaps the continuing consequences, God can and will forgive us if we turn back in repentance and faith to him. So that's the first thing. Never forget that. But what else? Well, uh, if we're continuing doing the wrongdoing, then we'd better stop, hadn't we? We'd better start obeying God. And if there are continuing consequences, clearly we need to think about how we can remedy those. The problem is, as was the case with the Israelites, sometimes we can't do that. Sometimes what's done is done or at least we can't undo it without doing a further wrong that's the that's what happens with sin you do one thing and you can't remedy it without doing another thing that's wrong how are we to react are we to conclude that we as individuals have missed god's way and sadly that's that 
that at best we're not in the centre of God's will, at worst we're outside it altogether. And that's forever. Absolutely not. If you think like that about what's happened in your life, then you're not learning the lesson of the Israelites' demand for a king. You're, you're failing to appreciate the awesome sovereignty of God, the totality of his sovereign control over the universe. God was in control, he is in control, and he will be in control. Nothing thwarts his purposes, nothing that you've done, nothing that I've done, nothing that anybody else has done, has ever not been foreseen by him. And what God foresees, he factors into his plans, as he did with the Israelites' request for a king. And if we repent and turn to God in faith, those plans are plans for our salvation. So if we do that, we can move on in our lives, past being put behind us, and serve God in his will. Oh, by the way, there may well still be consequences. There were for the Israelites. They suffered under Solomon and the subsequent king, kings. Yes, there may still be that. But we can move on knowing we are in God's will. And there's one last and really important thing to note. You see, God used the Israelites' rebellion. He factored it in to his plan for temporal salvation of the Israelite people, saving them from their enemies. But that wasn't the only thing he factored it into. He factored it into his plan for our eternal salvation. You see, well, I haven't got time to go into the detail of all that today, perhaps another, another day, but, but in brief... King David was promised that his house, his line, would last forever. And uh, the prophets who came after him said that there would be, in due course, a perfect king in the line of David. A perfect king in the line that started with this Israelite rebellion against God. And the prophets and others used the royal imagery to indicate the significance of God's Messiah. And then Jesus came, great David's greater son. And his life, and specifically the events surrounding his death, exemplified exactly the same principle as we've been looking at in the context of 1 Samuel 8 today. Just think about it for a moment. What Judas did in betraying Jesus was evil. What Caiaphas and the other Jewish leaders did in uh, condemning Jesus was evil. What Pilate did in washing his hands and handing Jesus over to be crucified was evil. They were all in rebellion against God. But God had already factored that in. Take a look at Isaiah 53, written 700 years earlier. Take a look at Zechariah 12 and 13, written 500 years earlier. God had already factored that in. It was already all part of his plans. It was in there. 
You see, God effected the temporal salvation of his people Israel through their rebellious and evil demand for a king. And he effects our salvation, our eternal salvation in and through all of that evil of people who were rebelling against him. God's will is not to be thwarted. And that's an extraordinary and wonderful thought. Of course, if you're rebelling against God, if you're running from God, then it could be a rather frightening thought. It could even be an oppressive thought. But if you're not, if you have repented and turned to God, or if you now repent and turn to God, for it's not too late, then it's a wonderfully reassuring thought. God, our true king, cannot have his will thwarted. We've got an awesome God. Amen.